0: Welcome to My Comic Shop History. I am your host, Anthony Desiato. Premiere week continues with this comic creator special recorded live at Aw Yeah Comics. Earlier this year, I had the opportunity to participate in an event co-sponsored by Aw Yeah and the Westport Public Library. I moderated a pair of conversations featuring Cliff Chang and Michael Kingston about their careers and creative process. I enjoyed both chats immensely, and I hope you do too. My thanks to Westport and Aw Yeah for including me. Enjoy! Our first creator began his comic book career as an assistant editor before transitioning to a freelance artist. Uh, today you've seen his work in the pages of Green Arrow, Black Canary, Wonder Woman, and a lot more. Currently he is the artist and co-creator of the Image comic series Paper Girls. He's here today to talk about his creative process and his career. Uh, once again, let's give a warm welcome to Cliff Chang. So, now, Cliff, normally on my show, I start by asking my guests about their comic shop history, Mm -hmm. but I know already that for you, uh, your brother basically brought the comic shop to you, right? He would bring comics home?
1: Yeah. I I guess this was, I don't know, uh, 1984 or so, Um, and my older brother started bringing them home. I always knew about comics, but hadn't read them. Um, They just weren't around the house. Uh, And... It just, I just fell in love with it, just the kinds of stories, uh, seeing, you know, the drawings and the sense of a much bigger story outside of that particular issue uh, really just kind of sucks you in when you're that age, just your imagination runs wild with it. Now,
0: did he actively seek to introduce you to comics, or was it more that he left them laying around and oh, you grabbed them?
1: No, he was getting into them too at the same time. So it really was a journey for all of us, um, you know, to just get into it and, and discover this new world. And you know, this was before really the um, uh, there were a lot of specialty stores. So our way of finding comics was going to you know elevens and you know Five and Dime stores and, and just trying to find issues and you know occasionally you'd find it you never knew when they were going to show up we weren't Smart enough to ask when new comics would be coming in so we just have to show up and hope that you know The next issue of X-Men or Fantastic Four was there and you know and maybe they had something that hadn't sold You know um, you know for a month or two and you know so we could kind of backtrack um, so yeah, I remember very clearly I uh, grew up in Jersey and we were going to Florida uh for vacation that summer and my dad had this you know great idea of driving down and we stopped we made them stop at like just about every any rush stop that there was like if there was a Seven Eleven or a gas station or something like that we'd go and just to check out the rack the comic rack to see if there was something that we you know could you know patch the holes in our collection um and it wasn't even really a collection it was just trying to figure out what the story was <laughs> so uh you know i'm I'm sure at that point my you know my parents were regretting that you know uh, the comics in the house. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's funny today. I, you know, I feel like you don't have as much of an opportunity for a quest like that these days because it's so easy to track down what you might be yeah. missing, it, which is great in its yeah, own way. But there is something to to be said for that for that yeah, kind of
1: experience. It, the, the modern thing now is just that, you know the you're just inundated with cho- you know with choices. Uh, so you know you can find everything. You can read you know 40 years of comics if you want to, but. Where do you start and, you know, what is, you know, do you necessarily want to start at the beginning? Like, I don't, don't, you know, I love comics, but yeah, I I never started at the beginning with any of it, really. And then it's just kind of finding things that you like and then maybe going back and learning about the history of them.
0: Right. Now, when you started drawing, what were the first things that you drew? Were you drawing actual sequential pages, telling stories? Was it more pinup up stuff?
1: Wow, I don't know. I'd be surprised if anybody started drawing sequential pages. <laughs> That'd be um, pretty
0: advanced, but you're extremely talented, so I wouldn't put it past you.
1: <laughs> no, I think a lot of um, a lot of kids just want to copy like the cool drawings that they see, and it, you know it starts there, uh, trying to figure out what is cool about it. You know, I think maybe that was always my um, my you know creatively like the, there was always part of me that wanted to kind of reverse engineer things, Uh, maybe not always consciously, but, and certainly later when I wanted to be a professional, but early on just trying to see like, well, what is it about this style? Like, why do I like this drawing? And what are the things that make it look like the artist drew it as opposed to, you know, my hacky version of it?
0: so as uh, Alex mentioned a little bit later you'll be doing portfolio reviews mm-hmm. so this is jumping ahead a little bit but uh, what are the types of things that you you know you typically find when you do portfolio reviews what are some pitfalls that aspiring artists sometimes fall into that maybe they should keep in mind
1: hmm I mean I definitely see a certain kind of drawing um, pretty often when I do portfolio reviews and that is is usually just a matter of like just putting in hours and and learning more about figure drawing and that sort of thing. So the fact that I see like that level of drawing pretty often like isn't surprising. What does surprise me when I I see portfolios is when um, people are really thinking about storytelling and they're really trying to think about it not as, there's a level of thought to it beyond just, say, uh, imitating uh, what they might have seen in a comic already, but that they're thinking broader about how to tell a story, what the reader needs, what kind of information um, they can get across in each panel. The, you know, the, one of the things I always think of when doing portfolio reviews is how difficult it is to your page is is so limiting in a lot of ways, and that's the challenge, is like you're, you're always fighting against real estate. It's like, because you could tell a story, you know, with just single page images if you wanted to, but if, when you have to break that down to someone, you know, entering a room in a building or, and that sort of thing, it's like how do you parse that information out so that the reader can understand it and is interesting to them.
0: Right. So this is the Write Your Graphic Novel series. Uh, So we do have some aspiring creators here. Um, And it's always interesting to me to uh, talk to people about breaking into the industry because there are different paths, and it can be a challenging... Uh, challenging thing to do. So that's one of the reasons why I'm excited to talk to you. The other is just that I'm a big fan of your work. Um, but for you, I know you started again on the editorial side, and then you made that transition. It's always fascinating to me to talk to people who have worn multiple hats in the industry, because I feel like it just gives you a very, a more well-rounded perspective than you would have if you had just been an editor or just been an artist. However, before we get to that, I learned recently that you were Uh, Before you got your job in editorial, you were admitted to law school Mm. and you deferred for two years. What was the reason that you gave when you requested that (laughs) deferral? All
1: right, maybe I should go back a little bit. Um, (laughs) I had gotten back into comics when I was in college. Uh, I hadn't read them like throughout probably most of high school, I think. Uh, And uh, going to college, I finally had like kind of less assigned time you know and then maybe a little bit of you know pocket money from like a school um you know work study job and there were a lot of great comic stores in town so i would go and, and discovered all the vertigo stuff which is really hitting me at the right age as an english major you know reading sandman just kind of blows your mind you're like wow you know <laughs> i had no idea that um there were comics like this and that there were comics you know out there for me you know I'd gotten tired of reading um, a lot of superhero stuff, and you know this stuff really uh I found out at the at the right time it made me want to pursue a career in comics and draw them hopefully um, i there was a time where I wanted to be a filmmaker as well, but then just kind of going taking those classes and struggling with the equipment and realizing how much um like kind of a group effort it was i enjoyed the idea of maybe doing all of it myself you know and and i could do that with a comic book i could tell a story i'd you know be responsible for the acting and the cinematography and the lighting and you know and that sort of thing so it felt to me like a almost a pure expression of you know whatever storytelling uh, motive i had i you know comics is such a small industry when i got out i was just basically looking for whatever job i could get um knowing that um, you know it wasn't going to be easy my backup plan was law school so in in like the last couple years uh, of college you know i prepared for that you know taking the lsat and and getting my uh, applications out and it was really pretty half-hearted but uh, a fallback plan like nonetheless and i needed it because i didn't know what would be waiting for me outside after i graduated um I saw, it. luckily I did get into law school, so I knew that there was like something there for me. And, uh, but then when I got out, started working, I deferred, I forget exactly uh, how it happened, but like I got in and then managed to, I paid my deposit to, to start in the fall. And then right before it happened, found, I've gotten work with heidi mcdonald at uh disney adventures magazine and um heidi
0: people might be familiar with her she runs comics beat the comics news site
1: yeah and uh she was yeah she's working at disney adventures magazine Uh, we're editing about 20 pages of comics on a monthly basis you know a lot of it from um uh cartoons and, and movies that they were working on at the time and then at that uh, that was right when she brought uh, Bone, uh, Jeff Smith's Bone, to uh, to Disney Adventures, and that I know like really opened up um, readership for Bone like in in a really amazing way. Uh, I think, yeah, I told I told NYU that I was going to take some time off. I didn't want to go right into law school. I wanted some work experience and possibly do some traveling. To Taiwan, where uh, my parents are from, and then I was going to go there, maybe teach English and that sort of thing. All of it was pure BS. <laughs> um, but really, like y- you know, that that's a bulletproof excuse. You're going to tell someone that you're going to really explore your heritage. I feel terrible about it now. <laughs> like, but you know, I-, I knew that that would probably go over. Um, but it gave me a two-year timeline to figure out where I was going to be in comics. And uh, after working with Heidi for about almost a year, uh, that's when uh, a job opened up at uh, Vertigo and then started doing editorial there.
0: Well, I bring that up because I did go to law school and now I work in the admissions office of that law school. And the next time I get a deferral (laughs) request, I am going to investigate it very thoroughly.
1: Yeah, you got to poke around a little bit more. You
0: just got to make sure. That's right. So... (laughs) So it was the idea from the start, you know, get the job, an editorial, take that time to learn how comics are made and hone your craft and network. I mean, was that the idea from the start and then you would make the transition to,
1: to full-on artist? That was, I guess, the, the conservative path. Um, I wanted to draw comics. I wanted to, to do all that stuff. You know, my my inspiration at that point was, you know, Mike Allred and Frank Miller and, and this vanguard of people who were, you know, doing... Um, Doing stuff on their own, you know. it Also, was very like in film. There's that DIY, you know, Tarantino and and Robert Rodriguez. Um, you really felt like you know if if you had enough, if you really wanted it, and you you know that there was a way to figure it out and then do it on your own terms. Um, but you know. It, comics is is drawing comics is really especially then you know it, it can be a rigid thing where you know you really do need to learn the ropes my stuff wasn't good enough but you know in your head you tell yourself that you are <laughs> you know even though you have your own insecurities and uh, you know if i'd been able to get a job penciling comics right out you know i, I would have done that um but it, it just wasn't possible so you know i wanted to be involved with comics i didn't know if a drawing career would be possible. So I wanted to, you know, just be involved any way that I could. And, and editorial seemed like a an easier path in some ways to try and chart because, you know, with, a, you know, an English lit and art degree that it, it somehow made sense, and, and luckily I was able to find work.
0: Easier, yes, probably relatively easier. Yeah. But it's still funny to me because it's, again, as we've said, the comics industry is a relatively small one, so I feel like getting any job in there is not necessarily an easy thing. So you got one kind of hard to get job in order to get an even harder to get job. <laughs> when you started there, I mean, were your editors at, at DC in particular, were they aware of your creative aspirations?
1: Yeah, I I did, you know, put some samples out there uh early on, but knowing that, you know, no one really wants to see your bad samples and no one wants to be no one, you know, you don't want to be walking down the hall and someone catching you and being like, "Ugh, oh, that guy," you know. So uh, I, I was pretty gentle about you know approaching people and and tried to always show my best work and you know it. You want to be a person, you know, <laughs> to them. You know, you don't want to just be someone who's hustling. And um, so it was there. I worked on art at night and but during the day, nine to five or ten to seven, as it usually was. Um, it was. Comics editorial was like grad school for me because part of a job, your job as an assistant editor is to um, catalog the art as it comes in. You know, it comes up from the FedEx room, you gotta see which book it belongs to, you gotta make copies of it, you gotta, if it's pencils, you have to take a red marker to the copies and put the balloons in and that gets sent off to the letterer. And, and so you're you're very hands-on with every stage of production and you get to feel how Changes from the script ripple. Um, you know, if if a, if a penciler changes the storytelling, you know, you you want to check against that. You want to see how it changes the um, the pacing and 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 where you put balloons. Um, and then at the same time, you know, you're also making sure once it's inked that that gets out to the colorist. So it it really taught me a lot about how the industry works. Um, it taught me a lot. I got to see how a lot of different professionals worked, you know? Some of the ones that were like always on time, what were their schedules like? The ones who were late, but, you know, really awesome. Um, so you would always forgive them, you know? And then the ones who were late and not so good and how they would lie or through their teeth to, to stay in your good graces. Um, so the, it was pretty multifaceted, but I, I learned a lot about the industry. I learned a lot about being a professional as well as just gaining contacts for later. Um, you know, I stayed there for about two years uh, when um, they kind of shuffled the editorial staff around a little bit and I decided like if I was going to, I had to decide whether I wanted to stay or not and I think staying would have meant, I didn't see like an upward path for me necessarily because it's, it's a small industry, because people move up sort of by attrition. Um, you know, someone moves to another department or someone leaves. Um, you know, I didn't necessarily see a promotion coming anytime soon, and I thought really hard about whether this is something that I wanted to be doing or whether I should take the chance and and try and you know go freelance. And you know, luckily I'd had a couple small jobs at DC uh, that it kind of you know just gave me a little bit more confidence, uh, and um, you know, and and then yeah, decided to go to go freelance and you know, again, hedging my bets, I also knew I wasn't gonna have a lot of work, so I ended up moving home with my mom for a couple of years, which is really tough when you're 25. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm really grateful for her, uh, you know, and, and it allowed me to kind of be creatively uh, open to a lot of things without having to just accept gigs based on making rent. Um, you know, and, and and that sort of thing. So security wasn't, you know, the the primary goal. Uh, it was just finding the jobs that were right for me. Um, I never had um, a very mainstream style, so to speak. I think, you know, even though I wanted to draw superheroes, I also really loved creator-owned Vertigo stuff and, and, and Dark Horse and, and all the different weird books that were coming out. And I always kind of fit uncomfortably in the superhero universe. and you know, had to find a way to make it work for me. And so I knew I wasn't going to be getting a ton of jobs, they just had to be the right ones. And then if I had got the right one and did my best, then maybe someone would take notice of it.
0: Well, I mean, that's a big decision to walk away from your day job. I imagine, you know, it's, it's I, I long for the day when I can stroll into the law school admissions office and, and give my notice. And I suspect maybe for other aspiring creators out there, uh, you know, that's something that they grapple with as well. I mean, in your position, it, it probably was difficult because you are working a full-time job. So you didn't have as much time to be drawing, but at the same time, giving up that steady paycheck. Yeah. Um, so definitely a big decision, but certainly one that paid off for you. Um, So going back to having that well-rounded perspective and and having seen so much, and I'm sure that was extremely educational, uh, it's funny. So my wife and I were at that stage in our lives where a lot of our friends are getting married. So over the five years we've been together, we've gone to a lot of weddings. And before our own wedding, when we would get an invitation, we were pretty good about getting the response card in, like pretty good. Sometimes we drag our feet a little bit. But after our own wedding and waiting for people to send in their response cards, now like we're great. We get one, we get it out right away because we know what it's like to be in that position. Yeah. So, are there any specific things from your experience as an editor that you try to keep in mind when now that you're on the other side and you're dealing with editors? Any things th- to make their lives easier? Yeah, or I mean, like I, that? I think
1: that, that is a big part of it. Um, you can always, um, if you know the process, you know where you 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 are in the assembly line. Um, it's easier for you to anticipate what an editor might need, um, things that make their job easier. Um, the one thing everybody can do is really just communicate. Um, editors get very nervous when they call and they have to leave messages and and they don't get a call back, you know. So, um, and yet at the same time, you know, you can send in pages and not hear from them right away, and you know, and then you're sitting there wondering about it. So, it goes both ways, but. Um, yeah, you have to be uh, just. You just don't want them worrying about you. It's almost like they're they're like you're you know they're responsible for you like like they're a parent or something like that. You just check in with them, <laughs> right. and and that's the easiest thing to do. And and if you're running late or if you're having problems with things like that's also there there might be things that they can do to help out um, you know but. Uh, I imagine people are also worried about you know maybe losing pages because you're behind and they just farm them out to somebody else and you know and that's a, that's a fear too. you kind of have to balance your um, your needs uh, but uh, but it's generally easier to just yeah make sure that nobody is stressed out
0: right So once you finally started getting regular gigs and I remember one of your your earliest uh, runs, those Josie Mac backups and mm-hmm. detective comics with Judd Winnick. Mm-hmm. Uh, the psychic detective in the, in the Gotham City Police Department. Um, so how did you land those earliest gigs? And at that point, like now that you're really stepping up, was there more more excitement, more trepidation, a little bit of both? How did you feel at that point? Uh,
1: that, was, that was a big deal for me. I mean, I had done a couple things here and there, but nothing was really very regular. A lot of it would be kind of one shots uh, that you know would be really fun and would have a nice long lead time as well but then working on josie mac was great because it was really manageable it was maybe eight pages a month and it was like the shallow end of the pool you know (laughs) you know you had you had to get it done but it was you had three four weeks you know to do it um and you know uh it, it it taught me a lot about, you know, just making sure that, you know, you were dependable. And, and if you were dependable, then people would come back to you for more work. Uh, as well as just, I had a lot of trust with my editors. Uh, Matt Idelson was editing that, and and I knew him from being in the office. Uh, i had helped out editorially uh, in their office after I left, kind of just going back as a freelance editor for like a week or two. Um, so we knew each other really well, and, and he trusted me, and you know there was even points where I kind of edited the script slightly, um, you know, which was easy to do because I was drawing the book. I could just be like, well, let's you know move that line here, or let's approach the scene slightly differently. Um, but it it was fun, and it, for me, you know, I do so much um, learning like on the page you know, like fake it till you make it kind of stuff where it's like, you just you just do it, you know, and then if it doesn't work out, then y- you'll do better next time, you know, but there's not necessarily a lot of time to do preparatory work and that sort of thing. So it was actually a good book for me to be on because so much of it was based in reality. It was Josie Mack, you know, working at the, at the precinct. Um, you know, I could research what precincts look like and, <laughs> you know, and, and a lot of real life stuff and then occasionally Batman would show up, you know. So those moments would then even cooler because you'd gotten so used to the the everyday nature of her job
0: so i'd like to turn to uh, some of the runs that you're probably most known for obviously you would go on to work with judd winnick again on green arrow black canary uh you had a tremendous run on wonder woman during the new 52 with brian azzarello and of course now you're doing paper girls with brian K. Vaughan. Uh, so i'm sure in each case there you know the collaborations are slightly different i mean how have how have each of those been what um what made each of those distinct
1: uh, I think you get used to I think once you do this for a while um, and what's important if you're starting out uh, too is to really think about the the way you tell your comics like each of, each of those writers has a different style, a very distinct style and a lot of that comes down to pacing and dialogue and like how what do you want you know the speed to be of like, a person responding to somebody else. How how do you want the reader to be reading your stuff? Do you want them to be reading it fast and kind of just breezing through it, or do you want them to slow down and, and take it, um, you know, panel by panel? Uh, each of them is very a lot. I would say most of the writers that I've worked with, I've been really lucky that they've been been really good, and the most successful ones have a good idea. Visually, they might not draw. Um, but they have an idea of what makes a comic work and how much, um, what goes in a panel. So uh, if you read a script by Warren Ellis or Garth Ennis or Brian K. Vaughn, Brian Azzarello, for example, like they know each panel's a moment. You know, it's not you know, a scene from a movie. It's, you know, um, you can't really think of it as an action that's happening. What you're, you're doing is kind of just distilling um, the story down to one particular emotional moment, you know, that, that may or may not have dialogue and then stringing those together in a way that makes it feel like it's happening. <laughs> but uh, if, you, if you think about each of those moments and how they build to make a page, um, that that's really helpful. Um, I, I think, you know, that you can't. The, the worst scripts that I've had to do are the ones that don't take that into account and they ask for a million different things in each in each panel. And there's no you don't feel a progression from the, the, the first panel to the last. You know, there's no there's no m- like driving engine. You know, there's no movement to it um, that that narratively brings you from from point A to point B. In a case like
0: that, how how would you handle that? How would you respond? Would you try to talk with the writer, with the editor, just see what you could do on when the art side?
1: You know, there's really not a lot that you can do, um, and that's why writing is important. You want you want to make sure that the writer is writing comics and not just adapting, you know, a screenplay that they have. You know, because it's a different medium. And and there are reasons why things work in comics that are separate from just taking uh, you know a teleplay and just breaking it down into moments. You know,
0: with your uh, Wonder Woman run in particular, you know the New 52 in general was a, a bit controversial, but your your run in particular uh, was is often highlighted you know as one of the bright spots of the New 52. And I know you've said one of the things that you're most proud of about that run is that. The, story, the stories might have been dark, but Diana herself wasn't, and I think that's very true, and I think there's a lot of potential for, for other similar types of stories with other iconic characters. Like for years, I've longed to see the Superman version of Gotham Central, Daily Planet, where it's like Lois and Clark as Woodward and Bernstein, and Superman barely appears, and if he does, it's just a blur. Like something like that. Do you, are there other things on your wish list, things that uh, you think would work in, in that type of vein?
1: That's a good idea. No, that's, a, I mean, that's a really good idea. I was thinking about something similar kind of on the train right up here. Um, it, you know, it's, I do, I think after working on Wonder Woman for, for uh, you know, three years, three, four years, um, I think what I realize is that I don't necessarily enjoy the, the everyday kind of punch up kind of comic, you know, like I, I, I love what superheroes represent, i love the design i love the mythology of it but the stories that i like the best have always kind of looked at the the genre from the side you know like so something like gotham central or batman year one you know or like treating you know daredevil like you know thinking about it as a crime comic you know and not as a straight on you know um you know, punch out the bad guy kind of thing, because it, it gives more life to it. It gives a context for it that makes, you know, the, the, um, the super heroic stuff seem even larger, you know, even bigger and more exciting. So, um, I think, you know, if there's, yeah, if there's any superhero stuff that I do, it's going to have a perspective like that on it. Yeah,
0: yeah, I think there's a lot of versatility to these characters that isn't always necessarily tapped into, and and it's there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in terms of selecting projects, the one thing I want to talk about is creator own versus you know working for DC. But just generally speaking, in terms of taking on a project. You know, writers often can do multiple books per month, but typically an artist, you're working on one series at a time. I liken it somewhat to, you know, being a TV actor. You sign on for a TV show, you could be locked up for five years. So, I mean, as you're selecting which project you're going to commit to and spend a year or more on, I mean, you know, what are the factors that are going into
1: that decision to take on something? It's it's tricky. I don't, I wouldn't say that I've you know figured it out in any way. Uh, I've been lucky. Uh, that i've enjoyed you know working with my collaborators so much uh, but you know there's definitely a period where like you know you don't you 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 have what's offered and you kind of have to weigh you know is this a real offer or is this just like a you know something that they need you to plug a hole in the schedule um, and and often you don't know and or, or you might not have the the freedom to make that choice either easy you know because you just need to you know you need to work um, I've found that the projects I've been happiest with are the ones that get me really excited. And, uh, because occasionally I'll read a a pitch and there'll be, it'll sound really cool, but there's part of me that's a little scared of it. Like, because of something that I, you know, it might be something that I haven't done before, but I need to figure out what that scared part is. Is it just because it's new to me? Or is it because there's something kind of fundamentally like, a bad fit for the project, you know? So um, something like Paper Girls, I had, you know, there was something in, I had some butterflies around it because, you know, I hadn't really drawn kids. Um, And the idea of drawing a book that was centered around four 12-year-old girls was like, that was new to me, but it was exciting. And I knew that that was something that, for whatever my unfamiliarity with it um, would be, I could get past it, and there was so much other stuff that was, you know, that I really loved about it too that it wasn't something, you know, that would stop me from doing it, you know, really. Um, and in a way, it was a challenge uh, because, you know, if I hadn't done that before, now was the time to do it. Um, you know, other times it's just like, well, maybe that's not the greatest idea, or there's there's something about the execution that is going to be, um, you know, or something about the project that would mean I wouldn't be able to do my best work. So the projects that I've I've had the most success with. Um, professionally, creatively, have been the ones that I've, I find myself the most um, attached to, like that I believe in them in a certain way and, and that there's something in me that tells me I have to do them, you know, whether or not I'm scared. Right.
0: Well, going back to the Wonder Woman run, you guys were on that book for a relatively long time. I mean, I feel like we don't see long runs so much anymore. I mean, obviously there are exceptions to that, but... Yeah. Uh, I don't feel like you see that as much. I mean, for you, do you do you like spending years on a book? Do you prefer more like get in and out and move on to the next thing?
1: It depends. If something's working, you stick with it um, because you do need a certain amount of work. You you I you know I think it's great to have a larger body of work. Um, you know, and we were really lucky with Wonder Woman to have such a great team. You know, I was. Um, Maybe the the artist that did the most issues on that, but you know we, we also had Tony Akins and Goran Sudjic and and um, ACO um, on it um, among people that I can I can think of right now, um, and so it felt cohesive, you know because we were all we all had the same goal of telling the best story that we could and keeping it all within you know our Wonder Woman universe. Um, so you know if you jump from project to project, you you know it's fun, but there's a lot of time that you spend kind of getting familiar with the world and, and figuring out what the project needs and the the familiarity that you feel when you're working on issue 12, you can't really beat that because creatively it means that you can try different things you know you, you can you, you've gotten used to doing things a certain way and then you want to mix it up and then you, you know whereas if you're just drawing, doing new stuff all the time it, that can also lead to you maybe making compromises you know about things because you just need to get it done and it's hard and it's, you know it's, because it's difficult and once you're further into a project there's more nuance to it and there's more opportunity to to, to try something else
0: yeah i mean that makes sense and as far as the whole, you know, DC Marvel versus creator owned, and this is a question that might, you know, might speak to some of the aspiring creators in the audience here in terms of, you know, what, what goals maybe they should be pursuing. I mean, with the DC Marvel characters, um, obviously, you know, it's a chance to work on these iconic characters, kind of get your hands on that, be a part of their grand history and tradition. But again, you don't own the characters, and ultimately you are serving the needs of, of somebody else, a corporate entity, as opposed to something creator-owned where you guys have that creative freedom and you own it. So if it gets adapted, all of a sudden it's it's just a whole world that's that's opened up to you. So, and obviously you've done both. Is that something you recommend an aspiring creator, like strive to have experiences with each?
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's tough, I can only, say that like for myself you know I really loved the superhero comics I read as a kid and um, even though I haven't done a lot of them I feel that I'm always asked you know if if, if there's one character you could draw like who would it be and earlier in my career I, I would have an answer for that now I don't I, I because it's all about the story I've drawn enough like kind of stories that I don't love featuring characters that I do love and so when that happens it really The honeymoon's over (laughs) you know as far as um the romance of superheroes you know it's sort of like well if you have to draw say like a a really boring batman script you're like well then you realize then that it's it's really about the story and and when you can and your love of a character can only take you so far when you're when it's a job that takes you know ten hours at the drafting table a day. You know, like that, that really becomes a slog um, if you don't love the story that you're telling. Um, but, you know, I also really, you know, loved uh, creator-owned books and the the freedom those creators had to, to tell the stories that they wanted. So that was always a goal of mine, but it wasn't, you know, until Paper Girls that I was actually able to do a book like that because I was trying to figure out my way, you know, within DC um, and, and what, you know, my career would be, you know, uh, I don't know, you know, I think something like paper, like Wonder Woman afforded me the chance, uh, the ability to take a chance on paper girls. You know, although, I mean, that sounds ridiculous, taking a chance on a Brian Vaughn project, <laughs> but um, but the, it gave me the freedom to, to go and do something and, and the desire to do something that was completely different from superheroes. Right,
0: yeah, that's something that I've been thinking about because I feel like oftentimes in terms of the life cycle of a creator's career, what you often see is you know getting their foot in the door with something, uh, you know, maybe at a smaller indie publisher just to get their name out there, build up a body of work, catch the attention of somebody at DC or Marvel, get a superhero gig, build up their following, and then be able to go and do something creator-owned. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, Is that fair to say? In, in at least well, some cases. Yeah, I
1: mean, in yeah, in that's definitely a big part of it. I think when you're doing as far as advice goes, if you're go- if you're working for a publisher, you want to make sure that the work you're doing wor- uh, is that it's a two-way street, you know, that it's something that that they're asking for, but it's also something that creatively fulfills you, you know, that that it that it addresses something and that you are getting something out of it other than just a paycheck, you know. So if you can figure out a way, you know, to put as much to put as much of yourself into anything as you can, and this way you always feel invested in it, um, and then you know, so it's not this kind of soulless work. Um, you know, even with with Wonder Woman, you know, what was great was that they really left us alone. You know, Brian and I would just be talking a lot about like you know the kinds of story that we wanted, stories that we wanted to do in in the book, and you know, we he was able to negotiate fairly early on that, you know, there wouldn't be crossovers with anything. Like, it just didn't make any sense for the story that we were telling for it to suddenly be, you know, to have, um, you know, Superman show up. Um, So, uh, it gave us a lot of freedom and it, it felt like, you know, for the time that we were doing it, it felt like, you know, we, like it was our character, you know, it was our take at the very least. Yeah,
0: and those are often the runs of mine as a reader that are that are favorites of mine, where you feel like the creators do have that freedom and and have that ownership, even if it's for you know however long it is. But uh, they can really put their stamp on it.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, I want to shift and get into Paper Girls. Who here reads Paper Girls? Yeah, we got a lot of Paper Girls fans. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, it, it's terrific. For anyone who's not familiar with it, uh, it focuses on four preteen girls, paper girls, uh, the morning after Halloween in 1988, suburban Ohio. They're delivering papers. Weird stuff starts happening. It's, it's really terrific. It's funny to me, though, because I've seen numerous instances where it is likened to Stranger Things. And, and I'm curious, from your perspective and Brian's as well, not that you need to speak for him, but I'm just... I wonder... You know, on the one hand, I suppose it's a good thing you have an easy point of reference for people, but at the same time, is there ever any frustration with your work being described and even defined in terms of something else? Because there are similarities, but they're they're their own stories.
1: Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's a funny thing. It is a really handy um, shorthand for describing the book, and, and there is uh, maybe in terms of overall feel, uh, you know, a similarity there. Uh, but... Um, yeah, I think it. You know, when when you make the comparison, it it does end up. Uh, it's probably only true really for the first volume, and then after that, um, the story changes pretty drastically. So, uh, I mean, I'm I'm grateful for the comparison because you know it, it. They're comparing it to something that that people really love, <laughs> as opposed to something that they hate. Um, but uh, and initially, I think I was maybe a little uh, perturbed by it because you always want to stand on your own two feet. But now that, you know, we're a few volumes into it, and we are, Paper Girls is, you know, its own thing. Um, and if people want to describe it that way, uh, you know, that's, that's cool with me, you know. As
0: the co-creator on this, is the collaboration different? Is there more back and forth than you've had with previous writers?
1: Uh, the, I would say the back and forth is about the same. But what you do is you take, and and this is to, to Brian Vaughn's credit, he's really open to collaboration. So what you do is you take creative ownership of it as well. You know, like he's got an idea of where the story goes. He's kind of got things mapped out in his head that he hasn't told me about yet. Um, but I also, you know, will make suggestions to him that show up in later issues. And then when there's a scene and he asks for, for one thing, I can... You know, it's up if I'm if I'm not feeling it, it's up to me to say like, well, what speaks to me? What do I think is cool? And not it's these aren't marching orders, you know. These are this is this is a point of departure. Um, if you think there's something better to do, you know, then then draw that. You know, is is something that he has in almost every script. He's like, you know, uh, this is how I saw it, but if you if you can think of it, something cooler, then then go do it. And that kind of forces you to to think outside the box a little bit more, to say, you know, well, I'm also a storyteller, so what do I wanna do here? What do I feel is right for this comic moment?
0: Right. When you say there's things he hasn't divulged, is that because he's holding
1: that close, or do you not wanna know? I think he's, in some ways, maybe mulling it over, Hmm. in some ways, because it's a big surprise. I don't see, I don't, he doesn't send me, like an issue-by-issue breakdown of anything. I just get the script um, when I need to draw it. And uh, we talk before each arc about where it's going and and in very general terms, maybe, you know. um, But, you know, what's gonna be in the script that I get, like, I'm never quite sure. So it's it's an experience for me reading it as the first time. I'm the first audience, really, um, for it. And, uh, you know, which is always really exciting, you know, because I, and I think it's a good way I wasn't used to that, but I think it is a good way to keep your artist engaged um, you know but luckily yeah, it's like I have a lot of trust in him, so you know it works out you know there are other circumstances where I might want to be more involved with the plotting and and that sort of thing um, but that's a different creative relationship and and uh, but this has worked out really well it's like for me with an editorial background like learning to back off in that way um, has been uh, at first, you know, it it was not difficult, but like it was a change of pace for me. And now that I'm, you know, th- that it that we work this way, you know, over you know 20 issues, it's 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 pretty much second nature. And you know, you just this trust, and you're just telling each other, you know, here's what I've done, I've put my best work into it. Now now it's yours. Now you take it. You know, it's really passing a baton on to the next creator you know so he'll give it to me and then I give it to you know to Matt Wilson and 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 Jared Fletcher you know the colorist and, and the the letterer so like everyone's doing their best because there's a lot of trust involved and, and a lot of and that trust is is there because the, everybody knows you you know they can see that you're you're you know bringing your A game to it
0: I suspect this is something you probably wouldn't be able to reveal, but has there been any interest in adapting uh, Paper Girls for film or TV? And just generally speaking, is that something you you would welcome?
1: Yeah, there 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 was uh there has been a lot of interest. The the thing is especially when the book first came out, there was a lot of interest and I, I you know, I said to Brian, I'm not sure even we know what this book is yet. Like, do we want to sell this property to someone who doesn't know at all, you know, um, where the story is going and what it, most importantly, what it's about, like, tonally, thematically, you know, like, those things are more revealed as the story goes on. It's not just the high concept, you know, because, yeah, you could take the story in a bunch of different directions after that first volume, but now that we're, you know, we're deeper into it, it's it's hard to, um, you know, it's it's sort of like say something like Scott Pilgrim, you know, where it's like or you know other other series that i've seen where you know like they're they have to write an ending for the story before you've ended it yourself and and i think that's really difficult and and you don't want to creatively be put in that position and i think anyone who does want to option it they should know what the entire story is right. and what what they're buying necessarily you know so mm-hmm. Essentially,
0: so as our time here starts to wind down, there are a couple other things that I, I want to get to, and I want to make sure we have time for at least a couple uh, audience questions. Uh, just in terms of your process, um, can you describe what your studio space is like? Are you um, is it all digital? Are you still doing uh, you know drawing by hand? Uh, not by hand, but uh, physically.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, what's what's the process like?
1: Yeah, I mean I uh, I live in Brooklyn, so it's difficult to work at home. You need a really fairly large space, so. Uh, a bunch of years ago, uh, some friends of mine who also work in comics and lived in the area, we started renting out a studio, um, which is a very unglamorous uh, basement apartment. And, uh, and it's yeah, I've been there for a while now, and, and it's great. It's great to have a separate workspace from where you live. You don't always have work staring back at you. Um, to be able to close the door on it, uh, and also just know that when you're in that studio, you're there to work. And you're actually more productive because of it. Whereas if you're at home, there's always stuff to do. They, you know, you, so you could be working, but then you know, you know, uh, I gotta get dinner started, or you know, there's laundry that needs to be done, and there are things that are distracting. Um, so you cut those out by by going to a separate space. Um, I mean, I know a guy who, you know, uh, lives in a house, and and he literally walks out the front door and comes in the back uh, to just get his head into a different space to know that he's going to work. Um, And so the studio has been great. Uh, I have been working in a hybrid digital um, format since probably the early, early issues of of Wonder Woman, where I pencil digitally. Uh, A lot of the planning work, a lot of the the heavy lifting of, of penciling is you know, kind of fix, making a lot of fixes and being able to do that digitally where you can shift things and shrink them really easily without having to redraw them, has actually made me a better draftsman. Um, my stuff is more accurate now, I can, I, I can see where there's problems and, and fix them easier. Uh, and then when that's fully penciled, I, I print it out onto Bristol board. And then I ink that by hand uh, with pens and brushes and stuff like that because there's something about the interaction the the Bob Ross happy accidents kind of stuff that you know when you, when you're drawing and then the the pen catches a little bit you know or makes a mark that you weren't expecting um, for me that brings a lot of life to the pages and so I, I stay with that and I like having um, there's a way in which when you're done with a page, you can step back from it, uh, which is always like a crucial thing when you're in art school to kind of just like, you can be noodling on something like really right up close, but you really need to take a step back and look at it as a whole. And having a physical page, it's easier to do that versus just reducing the page on the screen. There's something about it that um, I think helps you, um, Kind of just judge the page, you know, on its own, and and um, and see if it works. And then if there, anything needs to be changed, you can do that. And often, you know, if I need to fix things, I'll do those digitally. But if if um, you know if it's minor, I can always just go in with whiteout. You know, right. Which is like I use as much whiteout as I use ink. I think. Um, <laughs>
0: So my my last question is actually a question from uh, your biggest fan at Acme Comics in Greensboro, North Carolina, Justin. He wants to know, (laughs) what is the thing you hope your readers will notice about your art? As in, I'm proud of this, or I took a chance on this visually, but will anyone notice?
1: That's, yeah. um, In a way what I'm proudest about my work is something that I think is in a lot of ways invisible. Um, I don't specifically with paper girls, um, we want to be as accessible as possible, but I don't think that means simple. Um, what I really strive to do with Brian is create something that really, um, is immersive you know, so that you start reading the book and nothing takes you out of it. You know, hopefully, like, you know, his dialogue is so smooth, there's never a bump there, you know? So for me, it's making sure the same thing with the drawing, where nothing takes you out of the moment. And what can take you out of the moment is when the storytelling gets choppy, when you haven't visually explained something and it just shows up, you know, when anything that... uh, maybe even subconsciously, you you know, bumps in your head as you're reading it, because we just want the book to be easy to read um, so that anybody could pick it up if, there's, if it's their first book. They're not um, challenged by a really static grid where they're not sure whether to go up or down or left or right, you know, uh, that kind of thing. Just really make it uh, very clear, um, but not boring. and. You know, I think that's something that um, doesn't necessarily draw a lot of attention to itself because it's just about like making it a smooth, easy ride. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much, Cliff
0: Thank Chang. You. Thank you. All right, we will continue our conversation here. Our next guest is the writer and creator of Headlocked, the story of a theater major who falls in love with wrestling and tries to make it as a professional wrestler. It's an authentic look into the life of professional wrestlers and the industry as a whole from a lifelong fan. Please join me in welcoming Michael Kingston. So full disclosure, when Alex told me you were going to be part of this event, I I wasn't entirely familiar with you and your work. That's understandable.
2: No. I'm not entirely familiar with myself either.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, I've, I've really never followed wrestling in any way. But as I was learning about you and your book and reading your book, I was just so struck and inspired by your passion and the passion of the character. I mean, it, it's just right there on the page. Uh, so I'm really excited to be able to talk to you. So I came across a number of interviews that you've given. You've recounted your origin story about growing up as a wrestling fan and a comic book fan and finding that the wrestling comics that out that were out there weren't what you were looking for. What were they missing? I think, you know, when I was a kid, you know, I loved,
2: I've loved wrestling and comics since I was about eight years old. And just every time there would be wrestling comics, I would go and buy them. But they were always like Undertaker fighting demons or, you know... Kevin Nash's Mad Max or Ultimate Warrior stripping Santa Claus naked and stealing his suit. Um, some weird stuff, you know, but I mean, it was never about wrestling. It was always wrestlers doing other things, which just never really had any allure to me. And some people like that stuff. It's just, it's never been my thing. Um, so at some point it kind of occurred to me that no one was ever going to make the comic book that I wanted to read. So I decided to make it myself.
0: Right. so this is the write your graphic novel conference so you know once you made that decision I'm gonna I'm gonna make my own comic I mean w- where did you start were there any you know had you written anything before were there resources that you utilized any kind of training how did you how did you tackle that
2: um, I mean I made a lot of mistakes I don't have any formal writing training I have a biochemistry degree I manage a warehouse full-time like as a regular job so I just you know I guess I've always considered myself a storyteller I come from a family of storytellers and bullshitters and whatever um, so I, uh, I just started from the beginning I guess um, it's tough because there's no real beaten path so the first thing I did was what made sense to me not you know being a lifelong fan of comics but not really understanding the industry I made a uh, like a pitch packet like this is what it's about and uh, this is where you can sell it like I mean the whole plan has always been in my head you know you would sell it to wrestling fans and, uh, so I took it to every comic book publisher around and they were, uh, well, first they were like, well, where's your art? And I'm like, well, I'm a writer. Why would I need art? And they're like, well, you got to have art, I'm like get an artist. I'm like, but you're a comic book company and I'm some dude, like, how would that even work? So found an artist and, you know, we, we do the dance, but I mean, no one was interested. I mean, people were not really cool. I mean, like a dude, I always tell this story, but I mean, there was a guy that straight laughed in my face. Um, you know, when I gave him an idea for my book and, uh, it stings a little bit, you know, obviously something that you're passionate about and somebody responds that way. And it's, it's off the beaten path. I get it. You know what I mean? Like at the time, nobody was really doing straight drama and comics and, you know, it's all superheroes and stuff, even as, as ridiculous and over the top as wrestling is, as apparently it wasn't, you know, what they wanted. So, but I just... I've always, you know, I've been a part of both fan bases, and anytime I would go to wrestling shows, there'd be people with comic book shirts, and anytime I would go to comic book shows, there'd be people with wrestling shirts. So
0: I knew it was there. I just had to do it. Yeah, I mean, the the crossover appeal, I mean, it makes sense, right? Because in both instances, you have larger-than-life characters, colorful costumes, good versus evil, so it makes sense. But it's funny, I mean, we were talking about this when you first got here, you know, growing up, I always felt a bit of a stigma as a comic book fan. I mean my my parents, teachers, like people weren't exactly receptive to comic books. But I feel like you've had even an even a harder road as a wrestling fan and a wrestling fan and a comic book fan.
2: Yeah, no, when I was in I mean when I was growing up, I was a double nerd. I mean, it was tough, but you know, I mean, both of those things are a lot more accepted now than they were, but you know, you just you like what you like and you do what you like and you don't necessarily, I don't know. I guess I've never really worried too much about what people think of me. So, I don't know, maybe that's for better or worse when it comes to my fashion sense. But
0: <laughs> Well, you know, on that note, and going back to the rejection that you faced, I mean, I'm a huge Rocky fan, and I uh, see elements of that, you know, in your work, underdog story, and there's a great quote from Rocky Balboa that, you know, it doesn't matter how it looks to anyone else. All that matters is how it looks to you. And clearly, you've had that passion, and you've been able to realize it with with the comics and everything that you've built. So, you know, I mean, after receiving... Those rejections from traditional publishers and deciding to go your own way, really from a from a production standpoint. I mean, how, what were the next steps that you took? Was finding an artist uh, step two?
2: Yeah, so I, I had found an artist. Um, I had partnered up with some guys. Uh, it's called Visionary Comics Studio, and it was just a bunch of guys that were looking to break into comics. And uh, I partnered up with them. And you know, at the time, they had a message board, and it was just people looking for artists, artists looking for writers, and. I found an artist, his name was Randy Valiente, and he, uh, he was down to, to work on it. He wasn't really a wrestling fan, so it makes collaboration kind of difficult. You know, it's a lot of YouTube clips and whatnot, um, you know, as far as our first book goes. But, uh, you know, we, we made it work, and from there, like, I, I met, you know, I met a letter on that message board, where, and we were able to put the book together. So, um, you know, through, the, through that first process, then I kind of learned about... I guess, the production aspect of it. Right. So how did you eventually have it just printed? I mean... So the first series was done in Floppy through Markoja, which is a UK-based publisher. Um, and it was, a, it was interesting because, you know, in my head, you know you, everybody kind of believes in what they do. So I'm like, you know, I'm just, this thing's going to sell. It's going to fly off the shelves, you know, whatever. And so I took a week off from work, and I drove to every comic book store in three states, um, I went through Comic Shop Locator and put all the zip codes in. I wrote all the stores down, and I figured out, like, a MapQuest uh, route to go from store to store to store. Like, I spent one day in, in Manhattan, and I started at the tip and walked 100 blocks, and I had little preview books that I had made, and I talked to every Comic Shop owner, and they said uh, every one of them knew multiple customers in their store that were wrestling fans. And But a lot of them were like, yeah, but we don't carry indies. I'm not carrying, you know, we only carry top 50. I mean, I heard a lot of excuses and whatever. And it's just, that's when I sort of learned about the difficulties of publishing as an independent. Um, you know, previews, the back of the book, and all of that stuff. And, you know, I mean, I had people that were, you know, when we were in previews, I had people reaching out to me and, uh, like, I'm trying to get this book, and I can't get this book from my store you know, and I I called a couple of shop owners and I called one guy in particular and, you know, and he's like, this guy's telling me that you told him that you can't get the book. And like, this is the order code. And he goes, oh yeah, we don't carry Indies. I'm like, well, don't tell him you can't get it. Tell him you don't want to get it, which is an insane business model of turning down money from someone, but I get it too. You know, I know that uh, obviously comic book retail is a difficult proposition as well. So that's, so I had all those things sort of working against me. Um, so the book was in pre. So you went through Diamond, and the book was sure. in preview. So retailers
0: could order it. Correct. Right.
2: I and mean, it was just it didn't move. And I mean, despite all the legwork I had put in and all the effort I had put in, and whatever, just it didn't go anywhere. So
0: I think I might have read you even offered to have them sell it on consignment, and they. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my, there they was a guy that? there was a guy in my
2: town, who uh, I went to, and he just said, "He goes, I don't think anybody's ever going to read this," and uh, he wouldn't even carry it on consignment, and his clerk bought one from me on the right there out of my bag because I love wrestling because I buy one from me and the guy still wouldn't put it on a shelf. So, I mean, that stuff sucks when you're going through it. I mean, now it's a good story and it's, you know, it's fuel. You know, you don't ever forget that stuff when people kind of reject you in such a a real uh, personal manner. And I get it. It's not a personal manner, but it's hard not
0: to take it personal either. I mean, there wasn't personal animosity on their part. So, I mean, eventually, though, you were able to build up momentum and build up your fan base. I mean, you've attracted the attention and interest and collaboration of professional wrestlers. You've run successful, multiple successful Kickstarter campaigns. Uh, so how did you get from those rejections from publishers and stores to where you are now? I know I know, there's so much hustle that goes into this. Can you tell me about what you do? Yeah.
2: Um, so initially, like, always being a wrestling fan or whatever, I was, you know, active this is the one thing I would tell anybody like this is the most important thing. If you want to try to do your own thing in this day and age and everybody's trying to do their own thing, you can't wait for your audience to come to you. You have to go find your audience. So I sold my book out of backpacks out of my backpack at wrestling shows. You know, I would put on a message board like this is where I'm sitting. If you want to come buy a book, you know, this is where I'm at. Um, I sold books that way to build an audience. I would set up, you know, I would set up at some wrestling shows. I would set up at, uh, I would set up at comic cons and stuff. And then, uh, you know, really kind of turned for me was, uh, you know, a lot of wrestlers would buy my, they'd be at comic book shows as fans and they would buy my book from me and then reach out to tell me how much they liked it. Um, I met Hurricane this way, Rob Van Dam, um, Christopher Daniels, uh, Frankie Kazarian, and, uh, a couple of fellas like that. And they, uh, they really sort of helped me, you know, also promoting it and stuff. But then the real sort of thing for me was I was able to get Jerry the King Lawler to do the covers to my comic books. Um, So I sent him a cold email through his website. Like I literally forgot I did it after I did it because it's such a ridiculous thing. Like he's so famous and whatever, and people know him from like Man on the Moon and the David Letterman thing with Andy Kaufman and all of that. And at the time, he's I mean he's the WWE commentator every week. Um, So I mean I forgot I did it after I did it, and then maybe like two weeks later, I get an email like this is my address. Send me some books, and I'm still like ah it's his webmaster or something. And then maybe about two weeks after that. He calls me, and I mean it's his voice. You can't fake it. You know what I mean? He's, he's like, yeah, I love comics, and you know, I'd love to, I'd love to do this for you. And so, as it turns out, Jerry had got into wrestling through art. As uh, drawing, uh, he used to draw wrestlers and send them into the Memphis television station. And one day they put him on air, and then they hired him as like a, uh, almost like a courtroom reporter, where he would draw the the, the events that happened on the non televised shows, and then they would show him. And through that, he ended up meeting wrestlers and got trained to become a wrestler. So he said, you know, when he saw my email, this was sort of an opportunity for him to pay that kindness forward that somebody had, uh, you know, shown him years back. So that sort of, that, that helped. I started doing shows with Jerry, and then that sort of, it got me more cred with other wrestlers. It got me more cred with fans. And uh, through then, then we took it to Kickstarter once it became a, a viable option.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I'm sure the things that you found lacking in existing wrestling comics, other people did too, whether they're professional wrestlers or wrestling fans. So, and it's interesting too, because I I came across this in one of your interviews. You were talking about, uh, you know, a similarity between the comics industry and the wrestling industry. You know, people see superheroes and think that's all of comics, people see WWE and think that's all of wrestling. And clearly, in both instances, there's so much more to it and so many more layers. And I think you've really tapped into that with Headlock. So, I mean, what is it about Headlock that you think is resonating with these these people who share your passion?
2: I mean, I think everybody, to a certain extent, when you enjoy something, you kind of like to see behind the curtain. Um, yep, we do a little of that. It's also, like I said, it's a it's a coming of age story. Um, it's sort of an underdog story, and I think people always have a you know a soft spot for that. And a lot of it, like. You know the physical part of it isn't necessarily things that I've gone through, but the emotional part of it is definitely the same thing that I've gone through. You know, as a as a you know somebody trying to do their own thing, this kid's trying to you know break into a business that doesn't have sort of a set path, and you know he makes all the mistakes and whatnot. So I mean, a lot of it sort of emotionally is you know comes from comes from right here. So I feel like that's. You know, lots of people, I think more people have watched Rocky than have watched a boxing match. You know what I mean? So, like, to say it's a wrestling comic or whatever it is, but
0: it's not. I mean, it's in the it's, same way yeah. that
2: Rocky is a boxing movie. Right.
0: Yeah, funny enough, I mean, I said at the top, I'm, you know, I'm a big Rocky fan. I, I don't watch boxing. I mean, I've right. seen a match or two, but it's not sure. something that I watch regularly. But it's, yeah, it's that spirit of, of the underdog story. Um, so, again, I mentioned before about, you know, the, the hustle. I mean can you give us a rough idea you know we're, we just started 2018 2017 I mean how many wrestling and or comic shows did you attend last year
2: I really have no idea
0: <laughs> um so I work
2: about 60 hours a week and manage a warehouse I I get emails all the time for work that I have to deal with um missing trucks angry workers or whatever um but I try, to, I try to be somewhere every weekend. I was in Miami last weekend for a Comic-Con. I'm here this weekend. Tomorrow I'm in Poughkeepsie uh, working on a story with a WWE guy for sort of a secret headlock story. Uh, I think next week I don't have anything yet, but I'm trying to avoid going to Philadelphia. But I'm going to Kansas City. Just in the first quarter I got Kansas City, New Orleans, Washington, D.C., uh, Anaheim. Uh, I've got some local signings, I've got some wrestling shows in New Jersey and Connecticut. So I you got to be out there. You got to make a you got to make a connection with people one way or the other. I mean the, there's so much I mean it's just I mean it's a comic book, but you're not just competing with comic books. You're competing with you're competing for someone's time and I mean cat videos are awesome and they're free, you know what <laughs> I mean? Like I watch cat videos all the time, but you got to I mean you got to compete with that. You got to make somebody understand why what you're doing is worth their time. And it's, you know, that's, uh I think, I find the, the personal connection is really the best way to achieve that. Um, you know, I don't get a, it's it's different now. I mean, I've been doing it for a little while and I've got some big, big names attached and it's a little different. But I mean, initially, I mean, I this was the first year for, for my fourth book where I sort of get, uh I've gotten support from the comic book media a little bit. Um, but I mean, for a long time, it was just, you know, just me shouting into the shouting into the wind, I guess, and you know some of my wrestling friends throwing me some retweets, and you know just putting uh, putting feet to the pavement.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know that that balance, that tension between your day job and daily responsibilities and the the passion that you're trying to pursue. I mean, it's something. I certainly identify with, and, and perhaps our aspiring creators here uh, do as well. And I know striking that balance can be a difficult thing, but I found if you really have that passion, that can drive you and really carry you through a lot, whether it's rejection or uh, waiting to hear back, which <laughs> that can be its own beast. I'm, I'm in that, I'm right there right now, actually. Well, I saw that you submitted uh, Headlocked to Seven Bucks Productions, the, the Dwayne Johnson's production company. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah. Yeah. So we're kind of in limbo there, but... Uh, it'd be a great... I mean, it'd yeah, be a great fit.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, if somebody gets it and knows the the place to put it. But, uh, yeah, we... Uh, it's just part of the... It's <laughs> part of my ridiculous plan, I guess. But uh, I had seen that he was going to do a... Uh, he was, he was going to appear at the Stanley Comic-Con. And so my thought was, well, I'll just get some books in his hand. How hard could that be, you know? And we can, you know, maybe have a a 30 second conversation as I sort of awkwardly shove a packet of books into his chest as he walks by. <laughs> and then maybe, you know, we can go from there. So this also happens to be on the day of my wedding anniversary. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, and also maybe a, a few days before my wife was having major surgery. So it's a, you know, my wife's a saint. She puts up with a lot of crap. Um, a supportive wife can make a she, huge difference. <laughs> she does. Um, so, I booked the flight. She's cool with it. We're going to try this and whatever. And then I start calling my wrestling friends. And I'm friends with a ton of people in wrestling. And I figure somebody's got, you know, a way to get to The Rock. I'm friends with Ric Flair, Jerry Lawler, you know, Mick Foley, whatever. So I'm calling all these people. And they're like, no, you don't understand. Like, he's not that guy anymore. Like, he's on a whole nother level. Like, so now I'm like, shit, I booked this flight, you know, anniversary. Like, I got to come away with something. And obviously The Rock's got a very – he's very aggressive on social media and has a, a very specific brand so i basically wrote a small thing about uh you know start from the bottom now we're here kind of thing and yeah. put it on twitter and a lot of my wrestling friends retweeted it and eventually it made it across his uh across his his viewpoint or whatever and he he uh his team contacted me and allowed me to submit him some some stuff and i guess the now I, I was going to do a, uh, you know, just hand them some books, and now I have to make a formal pitch to a, a major production company, so that's a very different animal as well. So I was working on that while I was, you know, on the plane to Los Angeles and all this, and, like, I flew to, I we went to a, an appointment at the hospital for surgery, then I she dropped me at the airport, I flew to Los Angeles, I flew back, I worked on my pitch, I went to work that night, um, I mean, it's... Uh, but we got it, I mean, I got it in time. We've exchanged a few emails. Um, so I, I feel like if they were gonna say no, they would have said no by now, but I don't know. You know I never know how Hollywood works. So yeah. i am got all my fingers crossed for it. And, uh, but it's nerve wracking too to just know it's yeah.
0: out there, you know. It is, but exciting too. I mean, and all you can do is make and take every chance that you can, right? No, no, and I mean, that's, I guess sometimes I'm too dumb to, to know what questions
2: I shouldn't ask. And I mean that that works uh, that works in my favor too, you know. I'd be like, hey, Ric Flair, you want to draw? You know, you're, you you want to write a story for my comic book? And he's like, sure, kid, you know.
0: And there you go. So yeah, the worst thing they could say is no, and you right. you know, and you you know, as you recounted, I mean, you've had that experience. So, I mean, do you feel sure. like that kind of <laughs> once you've had that rejection, you kind of you don't, maybe you don't fear it quite as much? Listen, I mean, now, it numbs, look, numbs you over. Look at, <laughs> <laughs> look at his face. I've dealt with I've, I've dealt with rejection for a long time. <laughs> So, uh, if you could take me into your your convention hustle, convention experience a little bit. So, there are wrestling shows you go to, and then also comic book conventions, correct? Mm-hmm. So, I assume it's an easier sell at at a wrestling show. No, not, not so really. Much? It's there's a certain fan
2: because um, there's certain wrestling fans that just want their belt signed. You know, uh, there's star. You know, gotcha. <laughs> and uh, then there's there's people that sort of so. We were saying before, like, you know, WWE is wrestling to a lot of people and superheroes is comic books to a lot of people. So, you know, you got to find fans that are open to the independent sort of right. thing for both of them. So there's some people that just don't consider anything but WWE as wrestling and same. So if I go to a wrestling show, I got to find those people who like comics. But there's, all, there's always people that are willing to try it. So, like, the thing that I'm probably the most proud of is that I am a ton of people's first comic books. And I would wager more than, more than most creators because I'm out in a different area, sort of, you know, like a missionary out in the wild, like, recruiting uh, people. And I've gotten a ton of people into comics just through Headlock, where they read Headlock and they start reading other stuff. And-
0: oh, the irony of being rejected by the publishers oh, yeah. and the comic shops. I hear ya. <laughs> And now I'm
2: carrying their water. <laughs>
0: it's funny though because so with my podcast, I the last season I traveled to comic book stores around the country and talked to retailers. And one of the things we talked about is you know where are the opportunities for growth? And we talked about creating new comic book readers. And it's like, well, how do you do that? That, that you, I mean, you've been doing that. Well, I think one of the things
2: that's tricky is like if you if you discover if you read Walking Dead or you see it on TV and you want to read the comics, like if you come to a comic book store, a lot of times. You're either going to find it with other image books or books that begin with a W. Like, comic books is one of the few forms of media that isn't sh- sorted by genre. So I think, you know, like if you dig Walking Dead, maybe like like Arcana books or or Avatar, I mean, or whatever. You know what I mean? Like other horror books. And that's a, that's a thing. It's tricky. You know what I mean? Like, that's a lot of work. And it's different from week to week based on what what's put out there. So I do think sometimes that makes it hard for people to... Uh, to, to necessarily find what they're looking for. And I also think that a lot of times people that are fans of both of these things aren't necessarily the most... Like, I don't like to ask for things at stores, and it drives my wife nuts. But, you know, like, if I want to buy a video game, like, I'll go to GameStop because I can take it off the thing and go to the counter, but I'm not going to go to Walmart because I'm not asking somebody to open that case. <laughs> like, I just don't care. You know what I mean? And there's people that are like that, you know? So, I mean, I feel like, you know, the easier, the easier you can make it for people, the you know the more more uh you'll see from a return i guess right, but right. it's tricky you know you got that one shot to get somebody that's
0: coming out on a curiosity thing and you got to hook them on something well so in terms of hooking people at the shows in particular so what goes into like what sort of display i mean you have a display set up here i mean is that more or less what you i mean maybe a smaller version of what you have at at your shows i recently
2: just upgraded my display for new york comic con i have like these 9 foot banners now wow. and uh they're pretty they're pretty jacked up like i feel like uh I like them a lot. Um, it's a pain carrying them around, but um, they're also nine feet tall. So like some places, you know, some wrestling shows aren't even in places with nine foot ceilings. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I take what I need, I guess, if there's, you know, 100 fans or 200 fans, maybe it's a smaller display. If it's, you know, Comic Cons and stuff, I try, to, I try to bring something bigger. I usually have wrestlers that come with me. Um, you know, it's more of a partnership. Like I don't, Try to get into like taking money from people or whatever. I was just like, "Hey, look, I got this space here. There's gonna be a hundred thousand fans. You want to come make some money? You come make some money." Right. So, people say the the most amazing thing that I've ever done and ever was getting Ric Flair to come to my booth four times and not giving him any money and not paying for his <laughs> flights. So, <laughs> I uh, I feel like I've accomplished something, I guess,
0: in the in the wrestling world. And so when you're uh, you know when people are coming up to your booth. I mean, what what's the pitch? I mean, how do you how do you go about selling them on on headlocked?
2: I may just tell them a little bit about the story. I kind of let people just do their own thing. If I've got like a you know, if I've got somebody with me, a lot of times like you know they're they're coming to meet Jerry, and then Jerry will be you know talking to them, and they'll be a little starstruck, and you know you got to give them a little time, and then be like, hey, look at this, you know, or Jerry will be like, I did the cover for these, and. You know, that helps a little bit. Um, You know, everybody connects in a different way. I mean, I connect. I try to be a resource for people that are trying to break in, and I I try to be open about that. So sometimes people find me for that. Um, You know, I don't try to sell-sell. Like, if people want to buy it, they want to buy it. Like, I don't, you know, I've been a comic book fan forever, and I've been to comic book shows. Like, I don't like that hard pitch where you're just, like, where you're, like, and it's thirty dollars, and then it just kind of hangs there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, if you want to buy it, you want to buy it, and that's cool. Like, I don't ever want somebody to feel pressured into checking out my stuff. If it's something that, if it's something they they think they'll dig on, then
0: that's cool. You know? Right. I mean, I don't want to be that guy. In terms of goals at these shows, I mean, I'm assuming big picture, you want to raise the awareness of the book, turn people onto it, but then more immediately i mean you do have have overhead with these shows right you're you're paying to rent the space the booth space your, your travel costs um i mean how do you how do you handle that you do a couple different things um i mean usually that's not a problem usually i
2: can make enough to cover um but uh we'll do like limited edition prints like so for new york comic con this year i had uh christian dallas page lita and tommy dreamer and we did a like a an old Fantastic Four cover homage, and then they'll sign it and whatever. And we sell those, um, you know, that type of thing. Usually, though, honestly, I'm at a point now where I can kind of just do my own thing. And, you know, a lot. I'm friends with a lot of wrestlers, so, like, we'll do art prints, and they sign them for me, you know, AJ Styles and Joe and Finn Balor or whatever. Like, they'll just sign stuff for me because we're friends, and I collaborate with them on stuff, and they don't care because they're getting those fat WWE checks so i mean i've been really really fortunate um and i think the one thing that that's yeah. the other main thing i guess other than finding your audience is, is partnering with people you know what i mean everything takes a community like in as much as you know the stories about me out in the road or whatever like i wouldn't be anywhere without the people that have helped me um i mean the wrestlers have helped me uh i just started producing mini comics for wrestlecrate and it's the type of a thing where uh, like I make these mini comics where I collaborate with different wrestlers and then we produce them and we put them in their crate and they've got 1,000, thousand, fifteen hundred subscribers. And that allows me to sort of finance the production of more material. They've got something to put in their crate. And then, you know, the name guys that work with them, I get them, you know, uh, some of my friends can collaborate or can be a part of their thing too. And they can make a little bit of money. It's the kind of, you know, like if you do business where everybody wins, I feel like that's the the right way to do business. That's the way we try to do business. And you can find a way where everybody can help each other. Um, but just have some sort of value. You know, there's too many times where, you know, I people come to me and they're like, oh, I want to break into the business. And I'm, I'm at a table and I don't mind helping people, but they just dump their stuff all over your stuff. And they'll be like, oh, this is, you know, my picture of Batman fighting a velociraptor and whatever. And it's, it's fine. You know what I mean? But like some people are very, very oblivious of of anybody else's needs other than their own. Um, so I try to be a part of the community of, of guys. I've, I think I've backed 120 Kickstarters. Uh, I buy indie books when I go to cons. Um, you know, I do San Diego every year and we're in the little independent section. And, you know, when I see new people, I always try to go up and, and buy something from them just so they have a, you know, that kind of an experience, um, you know, just, Hey, we sold something, you know, cause it's, it's nerve wracking to be on that side of the booth and everybody's walking by, and, you know, I mean, I've had some, I've had some rough shows too, you know? So in terms of part of what you were asking about my goals, right. one of the goals I've, I've set for myself is to try to create a positive moment outside of the show. So my third show I ever did was at the Toronto fan expo in, uh, at the Toronto was the third biggest Comic-Con at the time. And I'm like, oh, Toronto is a huge wrestling city. We're gonna do great. It's gonna be awesome. And I'm in the Artist Alley section. And on this side of the Artist Alley, there are satanic priests, cause they have a horror section. And then on this side of the, hor- on the horror section, there is a uh, a carnival, like a freak show carnival. And there's like a very aggressive dude who's like trying to get people to come in. So about, you know, an hour into the show, everybody kind of figures out, they just walk all the way around. So we got no traffic. We're not really selling much. And then I get sick at dinner that night and I left my bag with my cash box at the restaurant. It got broken into, I had all my cash taken. And then as I was leaving, I had a long box on a, on a hand cart and I was going up an escalator and the box collapsed and all my books went down the, a packed escalator full of people. Like it was, it was my third show, like I was ready to be done. Like it was tough.
0: Um, I mean, I would imagine that's a hard one to get it back was,
2: up it was, from. It was, it was and it wasn't a cheap show to do. Um, so that was a real that was a real disheartening day. So I sort of made a pact to to make sure that I create some sort of a positive memory whether it's visiting something in a city that I'm in or uh you know, for anybody that's ever followed my Instagram, I eat a lot of food. Um so I try to find like a good jacked up food place or something that's really good to uh to sort of tie it, tie it around so if the, you know, if the if the event doesn't go bad, you know, at least I get some
0: at least I get some, uh, you know, I can raise my blood sugar level a little bit. At these conventions, specifically the comic book ones, I mean, what do you find are the biggest preconceptions and misconceptions that you have to combat with respect to either wrestling generally or or headlock specifically?
2: Hmm. I think people always think, like, I think people, a lot of times, I think people don't understand, like, how difficult of a business the comics comics is, and I don't think I did either, you know what I mean? Like, you know, one of my friends always makes a joke. He's like, oh, when are you going to get that Spider-Man money? <laughs> and I really don't think that that's a, a, a thing that exists, you know. And I, it's different if you're in, like, WWE, I think. But, I mean, I don't think anybody's getting, like, super, super rich either way. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's – I think you do it out of love. You do it out of passion. Um, you know, I, I know all kinds of people that I feel like like they want to get into it to be famous or to be rich or whatever. And that's the wrong reason to – it sounds – Whatever, it sounds trite, but it's the wrong reason to do anything. I mean, when I've worked, you know, my usual convention weekend, like I work Sunday through Thursday, I leave work at four in the morning. On a Thursday, I drive directly to the airport, I fly to a show, I take a taxi to the show and set up, do the first day on no sleep, then I do the other two days, I fly home and then I land and then I go to work. You know, I come home quick, shower, go to work. I mean... You gotta you gotta love what you you gotta love what you're doing you got to have some sort of passion to sustain that um, otherwise it just becomes an unbearable slog
0: yeah and I would imagine again attracting the the interest of professional wrestlers developing your fan base helps fuel that passion right when you see that what you're doing is resonating with people
2: yeah it's ridiculous I mean I've had some really cool stuff happen for you know for a guy that manages a warehouse in upstate New York and writes an independent comic that a lot of people haven't heard of I mean I got invited to WrestleMania two years ago as a as a guest of two K Sports. I sat in a luxury box, like that was pretty cool. Um, you know, I've been to Hollywood parties and stuff and hung out with famous people and I don't know. It's all that stuff's pretty neat. You know, it's a nice little side perk of having famous friends, I guess. But yeah. you know, it's I've had a lot of a lot of really cool stuff happen. If it all ended tomorrow, like
0: it's it's been a good ride, you know. I'm sure those famous friends it helped a lot with the crowdfunding, right? Because I had my right. own recent crowdfunding experience and it was mm-hmm. successful, but well it was a beast. And I would imagine having people in your corner like that who can who can get the word out must must be a huge help.
2: Well so what we do is the books I sell at shows, at conventions or whatever, they're five chapters of headlocked. The books that people get through Kickstarter have uh, supplemental content created by famous wrestlers. So the the last book, the book that we're currently producing uh, Rick Flair, Mick Foley, Cody Rhodes, and Kenny Omega have stories in, you know, and that's sort of, we try to reward the people who help us the way we need it the most, so the Kickstarter books are super, super jacked up to like 40 extra pages, and it's all really cool content. Um, Ed McGinnis is doing a pin-up for it, uh, Andy Bollinger, uh, who else, uh, Raphael Albuquerque, Robbie Rodriguez, like it's a, it's a real murderer's row, because I mean everybody, it's so many people love wrestling, and they want to just, you know, they want to be a part of it. So it's been really, really cool.
0: Right. You know, in recent years, we've seen things like the movie The Wrestler and even more recently, Glow on Netflix. I mean, when you see things like that being successful, resonating with people, do you've I mean, how do you feel? Is there a sense of vindication? Like, yeah, there is an audience for this, and, and people want this? Yeah, absolutely.
2: And, I mean, it's nice. I think the one thing that the Internet has done for everyone, I think, has made your your sort of secret geek thing cool and you sort of realize now that everybody likes that stuff and you're like oh man you know I just learned Terry Crews was an artist you know what I mean like and a good one you know what I mean like everybody's got their little weird thing and I don't know like I think it's made it more socially acceptable now for people to to, to get their old geek flags out and I think that's allowed for the explosion of these types of things and these types of shows where you know for years like I would go to I would go to San Diego and I would, Hollywood people would come by and they'd look at your stuff and be like, oh, this is really cool, you know. They're like, too bad they already made the wrestling movie. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm sure they felt that way when, when Goodfellas was made. And they were like, oh, they already made the mafia movie, right? But that's, that's the mentality that you have to fight against. And it does right. seem like that's loosening up a lot. So, you know, as, as I think everything sort of descends into more niche interests and whatnot.
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, I def- like I said before about feeling that uh, comic book stigma you know when I was growing up and I, I definitely don't feel that as much now so it's nice to see that and, and hopefully you know with with the wrestling stigma it's moving away from that as well yeah no I agree I think that's
2: definitely a case
0: so I gave just a very brief uh, synopsis of, of headlocked at the beginning but would you mind telling the, the audience a little bit more about what headlocked is about so it's about a kid who's a
2: theater major in college and he sort of unexpectedly falls in love with wrestling and he kind of gets the wrestling bug. He quits school and it's sort of his journey through the wrestling business starting on like day zero. So we tried to make it accessible for everybody. Like all you really have to know is this oiled up hairless men pretending to hit each other and you can follow the story. Like I try to, you know, so he's starting from day one, he's got to find his school and like he's learning to run the ropes. And the thing that I like the best is that all the art in the book now is done by professional wrestlers. So. My new artist, or the newer artist, the artist on the book for the last three, is uh, his name is Mikel Molopola. He's a Samoan wrestler from New Zealand. Um, he was a tag champ with Haku for people who know wrestling. Um, but he does the art now. So he's, I mean, he's an amazing artist. Um, we also collaborated on a story with Samoa Joe for the Boom comic that it's actually out this week. Um, hes uh, He brings sort of a different you know, he understands everything like with hand placement and stuff and like where things, you know, how things should happen. And one of the things that's always funny is when wrestlers look at my stuff, they're like, who taught, who taught your artist how to, you know, how to draw a proper bump or how to run the ropes properly. And, you know, so it's all like, it's super, super authentic. Um, and I like the idea of, you know, a kid learning the art of professional wrestling and all the art is done by wrestlers. Um, Jill Thompson does our credits pages, and she's she's kind of got, like, a toe in the wrestling business. She designed a lot of gear for guys and stuff, so... But she's the only sort of non-wrestler that's, uh, that's part of it now.
0: Yeah, what sort of... Do you have wrestling experience yourself? <laughs>
2: so this is a ridiculous story, but when I decided I was going to write the book, um, I was like, yeah, I should probably get a feel for this. So... <laughs> I... How, on the on the message boards you know when i started you know sort of kicking out the ideas some guy reaches out to me goes hey you know i live down in uh in Newport News Virginia and me and a couple of the guys were big comic book fans and you know we really like what you're doing and we'd really like to see it done right so we kind of want you to get a feel for it and i was like you know okay and they're like so so we want you to come down and work out on our ring sure so i drove to Virginia to to work out in a wrestling ring with three people I'd never met in my life. I mean, I could have gone really badly. Um, and it, and it didn't, you know what I mean? I didn't even think anything of it. Like I was just like, now I'm like, man, what a dope. Like it could have been like organ salesman or something, or, you know, like, you know, I mean, back in the day, like that type of thing. I mean, I don't know if everybody remembers like John Stossel and uh, David Schultz, like he got his ass beat on 2020 for asking if wrestling was fake. You know, I mean, guys used to have to protect the business in that way. And, you know, so if I tried doing this maybe 30 years ago, I probably would have, you know, gotten a snot pounded out of me. But, you know, they were all super cool, and it was cool to get a feel for it. I mean, I played football for 15 years, and, you know, I didn't really get hurt that much. But I did that stuff for two days, and I couldn't turn my head to the left for like a week. So, I mean, it was a—it's definitely a, a grind, and it's grueling, and it's just like anything else. Like, you know, you're sort of teaching your body to ignore its natural defense mechanisms And then sort of just absorbing that pain. And I think that that's fascinating, like, you know, the, you know, what these guys give for their art and, you know, to have that art sort of ridiculed to a certain extent, you know, and these guys are, you know, cutting their foreheads open or, you know, some of the deathmatch guys will, you know, go through like, you know, panes of glass and stuff. And it's, uh, you know, it's, I think that's amazing for people to have that sort of uh, desire to give that of themselves.
0: Yeah, no. I mean, I think the book has a lot of insight and and a lot of heart. I mean, I really enjoyed it. Um, For people who want to uh, to pick it up themselves, well, I know you have them here. But generally speaking, where can people get your stuff? Where can people follow you? Uh, All my social media is Headlocked
2: Comic. It's one word. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that. It's all run by me. Um, Like I said, for people that are interested in breaking in or whatever into the business or want help with that, I mean, in as much as I can help or give advice. I'm always open to people that uh, are interested in that kind of stuff. Um, Yeah, you can get my books online or at shows. Um, Once we're done with this, the book we're working on now, we'll have another Kickstarter. Um, I got a couple other things. I just did two stories for Boom. I did one for the Royal Rumble special with AJ Styles and then one with Samoa Joe. Um, Probably going to do more with them. I'll be working on a licensed thing with some Mexican wrestlers later in the summer probably, so... It's been a little, it's really cool to kind of start to get a little bit of appreciation for all the effort that we've put into it, like, you know, where people are like, oh, I'd like to see you do other stuff. So it's kind of neat
0: too, but I mean, Headlock's always my baby. If some of the publishers or one of the publishers who turned you down, came back to you now and they're like, hey, we hear The Rock smells what you're cooking. We want your book now.
2: Well, it's kind of funny what would you because, say? because- because the the person that works for the publisher that laughed in my face does not work there anymore, but they, they did publish a wrestling comic book that was very, hmm. uh, like it did, It wasn't like mine, but the press release made it sound very, very similar to headlock. So, hmm. but, uh, it's fine. They're like, I don't care. You know what I mean? Like I, I think everything happened the way it had to happen. Like I mean i feel like you know if somebody had picked me up back in 2009 or whatever like it would have been in stores it would have been out of stores you know what i mean like i feel like the lessons that i learned and the the stuff that i went through ended up making me make it a stronger book um you know so you know we went through like i went through uh i mean i went through uh you know there were times where i asked people you know i was sort of forced to ask people uh, that I that I didn't know uh, or I didn't have relationships relationships with for help and whatever and you know I was sort of forced to do that because of you know you hit a wall or whatever and like oh hey you know and that's how I that's how I built uh, a connection with Ric Flair um, which is cool you know what I mean like it's cool to to know a dude like that um, but you know what I mean sometimes like all those all those obstacles take you out of your comfort zone and then they force you to Either you know, adapt or die, sort of speak, and uh so I guess to a certain extent i guess i'm I'm glad everything happened the way it happened, or I probably wouldn't be sitting here
0: now. I would have had yeah. a book that went five issues, and that would be it no, everything happens for a reason, yeah, sometimes that reasons random chance, other times there's true
2: meaning behind it, you know right, so I mean, it's just about handling you know handling adversity the best way
0: you can, and whatnot, but yeah, it's uh. It's been a crazy, it's been a crazy ride. Yeah. No, like I said, I, you know, I said it on and off mic, but I'm very inspired by what you've built.
2: Thanks. I, and that's something to consider though, too, when you want to do your own thing. Like, I mean, I would wager that a good chunk of you have no idea who I was and you walked in the room today and that's how hard I work to be unknown. So, you know what I mean? <laughs> like if you're, if you're, if you're really going to go for it, you know what I mean? Like that's, you kind of got to work as hard as the next guy or else what's the point?
0: You know, I think that's been a bit of a theme here today, whether it was Cliff giving up a sure thing as an editor to take a chance at being a freelance artist or the hustling that you've done, you know, really taking those chances and having that passion and seeing it through. So again, kudos to you for everything you've accomplished. For anyone out there who's looking to to do the same, uh, you know, go for it. Uh, It's really been my pleasure to moderate these conversations. If you want to hear me talk to more people, uh, My Comic Shop History is available on iTunes. And uh, thank you to Michael and, and Alex and Mark and Franco. Thank you all. Thanks for listening. Premiere week concludes tomorrow, Friday, April 6th, with a book club discussion of Batman White Knight recorded live at Zap Comic-Con. Don't be a flat squirrel.